This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Sins of Wisconsin. I am Fallon. I am here with Mims. How are you, Mims? I'm doing great. What a lovely day we've been having. It's 80 degrees. It's still summer. Yes. Love it. And today we have a special guest, Mike Short, who we are going to be interviewing. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Been a long week, but I'm definitely glad to see the weekend. Yeah, definitely. So basically, we are having this uh, interview, in a sense, to dive into life inside of prison. Um, And that's specific to Mike because of his background. Um, So we're going to have some uh, questions that we want just to shed some light on that and um, get some juicy tea as well, if you have any. And just get to know you a little bit better. Definitely. So, uh, you want me just to give a little bit of background about myself, then, I guess? Yeah, go for it. So, uh, so people don't, you know, feel here or, uh, or uh, don't know right now. I spent 11 of about the last 13 years in Wisconsin State Prison. I've been incarcerated numerous times other than that since... 2004, various county jails and jurisdictions. So I want to begin by saying right out, of course everybody can see cap everybody, and anybody can do that with me. Uh, all of my charges were drinking related. I was one of those people where substance abuse was my issue. Now, what's interesting about that, and I think a lot of people fail to realize, is that even when you have a crime like that, it puts you in situations where you're around murderers, rapists, uh, pedophiles. Um, the way that the Wisconsin State Prison System is structured, you know, eventually people that were considered super dangerous are brought down to a lower security. And so those people end up with the people that come into prison at that security. So you might have a guy that's a deranged killer that did 20 years, convince people that he's safe, and they move him to being around people like me. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that people knew uh, I spent the vast majority of my time in medium security prisons. I did do time in minimums, um, but I've also been to a maximum security prison. So um, yeah, I'm 40 years old, do the math. I spent you know, 11 years in prison. That was a substantial amount of time. Um, and you know, it's very therapeutic for me uh, talking about it engaging in prison reform programs and stuff like that and uh, yeah so I mean it's it's totally affected my life but I've definitely met some really interesting people and some notorious and interesting well I'm excited to talk about that later because I'm sure you've met all sorts of different types of people um I guess yeah let's just talk about it let's talk about it just go right into that well I can give you some of the highlights 
of some of the more interesting or like notable occurrences that happened while I was inside. Um, you know, actually, I think when I first started listening to your guys' podcast, I, I believe that I did it um, searching for one particular individual that I lived next next to. His cell was right next to mine. We did laundry together. His name was Gerald Turner, uh, who's also known as the Halloween killer. Oh, uh, he, he was known, so bad. Yeah, it was a very bad story. I know all of it, and I won't revisit the details here because I believe oh. you guys it and some, several other people have in their podcast. Um, but yeah, I when I came in, I really, I, you know, I, I didn't really have an interest in, in podcasts and stuff like that because I was in prison, obviously. But meeting this person and then not knowing who he was beforehand and then finding out after I had got out or mostly after I'd actually done time with him because I became privy to some of his legal uh, things that were happening. You know, as you know, that he did get released technically, um, but to Sandridge, a facility that they have for people just like him. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was just amazing to me, you know, doing laundry with that guy, him talking to me about working on the railroads, all of this stuff. And it wasn't until I was there for months that somebody had told me what this guy was actually in there for. And I was flabbergasted. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it, it really is true that I almost think that the worse a criminal is, right, the more like deviance that's involved with it, the more normal they actually appear. And it's, it's at least in prison, you know what I mean? Because they have they have a vested interest in, in yeah. trying to make everybody, but everybody's pretty wise to them. Um, but yeah, so that was a situation that I had. Another time when I mentioned I was uh, I was staying, I, I was housed uh, at a maximum security prison in uh, CCI, that's Columbia Correctional in Portage. It's the same one that Jeffrey Dahmer was held at. Um, and that one, I, uh, I was actually towards the end of a sentence and they moved people to like a barracks housing that's on the prison compound there. So you're separated from, uh, you know, the real baddies for the most part, unless you go to the doctor or wherever. But this had, this time I, I was really, you know, it was like seven month period towards the end of my sentence. And I decided I was going to reread the Stephen King Dark Tower series. You know, I just wanted to eat up some time. So I, I get into that and I start reading through them and I get to book number four. Now you gotta remember most of the books that are in prisons have been donated or you know either by inmates or by, by other people um, but so i get halfway through this book and when you get a, a book in prison usually what you'll do is you'll write your name and your doc number on it in a few different places um, so like somebody's not going to rip it out to steal it because then they'll ruin the book um, well this particular book i got halfway through it and along the spine i saw J. Dahmer 10393 written along the spine. Um, so that was a book that was that belonged to Jeffrey. Well, a J. Dahmer that was at CCI on I, the 3rd of October in 1993. You know, I so. think it's safe to say it's Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm, I'm just saying. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you cannot imagine the look on my face when I turned the page and I seen that. It was like one of those weird movies where like, you know, the usual suspects or something, you start seeing everything. It's very bizarre. Uh, That's weird. Yeah, oh God, there was that. I, I, I can't, 
I can't express to people how normalized violence gets in prison. Like people don't really go out of their way to talk about uh, like the violence in a Wisconsin state prison, like they might say Alabama or Texas or California. Right. Um, that largely has to do with the size of their population. Um, I can tell you right now that I did time at RCI, that's in Racine. I did time at CCI. I did time at Fox Lake and a bunch of other prisons in the state of Wisconsin. Stanley. Um, some of these prisons have close to 2,000 inmates in them. Wow. And, yeah. And when you think about that, you're living in like, it's a small city. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's it just, it does things to people. It takes totally normal people and it pushes their buttons in all the wrong ways and uh, and you see people do things while they're inside that keep them inside longer um, yeah i'm curious about that if somebody has like a life sentence so they know that they're not leaving ever did, did you see that they just didn't give a fuck and they were just behaving however they wanted or is that kind of a myth well, to answer that, let me bring up another another gentleman who I know he's fine with me talking about. He's still incarcerated. He will for the rest of his life. Uh, he's a, a gentleman named Michael Crabtree who was convicted of murdering a college student, um, I want to say back in the early 90s, late 80s. And this is a guy who committed a very violent crime. And he, you know, he's one of them guys where he, he adopted Christianity and this and that and the other thing. Now he's been down for, I think maybe over 30 years now. Um, and he was in for, I would say maybe 15, 20 years. He had worked his way back down to, um, to a medium. And there was, a gentleman that was making cracks to him about a girlfriend that he had or whatever he was getting letters from and talking to her on the phone and all that stuff and this other guy he'd been down for a couple of years maybe you know younger dude and crabtree had saved now he's probably in his upper 60s maybe even lower 70s um but when i was at i think that was when i was at stanley because i'd run into him on a couple of different occasions um, he was walking behind this gentleman uh, to go down to the chow hall, right? Because uh, he worked a late job where they had safe trays and stuff like that. And he walked right up behind this guy. He headbutted him in the head so hard that he knocked him out. And then he raped him right there in the hallway. Oh, oh, I did not see that coming. Oh, wow. Now, this is a guy that did a life sentence or, or that's doing a life sentence without parole. And he his only incentive really is to not want to be in um in a higher security setting but right. the problem with that is incarceration affects your brain yeah mm -hmm. you are not you are not punishing the same person that goes in on their way out and they don't change anything that they're really doing other than maybe changing your security classification. So there's really no juice in it for this guy to do anything but serve his own self-interest because I'd been hearing him for weeks before that saying that he was fucking tired. Excuse me. He was, he was very tired. Uh, you can cuss on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, We're rated but, R. <laughs> yeah, in a medium in a medium prison, 
he just he didn't like being around these guys that have been around for down for five ten years talking like they were all hard and and whatever and he was just one of those guys where that stuff bothered him and he was looking for a reason to do it mm -hmm. you know another guy i knew that that killed and raped somebody in the shower 10 minutes after i left out of there right because this guy he liked taking his showers on his own and their group showers and there's some people you just got to leave them alone man like even if you got to take a shower you just like you don't you know this guy he's sitting there saying if you're not out in five minutes you're getting company so you're the gay one not me you know that kind of he didn't say nothing that guy went in there he raped this guy and he killed him he caught a new charge they sent him to Boscobel. he was about as happy as can be he didn't like being around people so they put him in a single cell with his tv all of his books he was in a cell for 23 hours a day unless he had a, a job you know i found out i found out a couple months after they sent him to Boscobel, and he got all set up out there he had a hernia, they cut him open, he was riddled with cancer. So then he, uh -huh. you know what I mean? So like if this guy had died of cancer and had that hernia or whatever, even a couple months earlier, this other dude, he'd have been still alive. You know? Yeah, yeah so it's crazy. It's crazy so, because people act like Wisconsin prisons are safe. There's so many arbitrary, ridiculous forms of, of violence and, and like irrationality that happens there. You know, and, and it's it's the reason why I get really frustrated when I hear people that have no real, um, I get frustrated, not angry, when I hear people that have no real experience with with prison. And I don't even mean somebody that's not spent time in prison, but that has a loved one or something that they've actually had real conversations about. Um, it, it's very frustrating when these people talk about prison reform and stuff because you don't you don't you don't really know what the problem is. You know, and then you create solutions and it's no different than anything else where like you have bureaucrats and stuff like in any walk of life that'll create rules or do stuff, right? So that they can tell their bosses that they're doing stuff. Yeah. And if it's quali quantitative change and not qualitative, things never get any better. You know, no. that's why the recidivism rate is what it is. I mean, there's a reason why like in, in in America, I think it is right. I think they only they only clear like sixty two to sixty four percent of all murder cases. Yeah, and, and in Wisconsin, it's much lower. In Milwaukee, they're lucky if they're at forty percent right now. And you know, you look around, right? And there's like, what are they? God, are they saying there's twenty thousand or two hundred? It's a big number of murders in in the country that happens every year. And you start doing the math on that. You start looking around when you're going to the grocery store and stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. You don't know, right? I mean, you really don't. You really and, don't. And, and that's another thing I would like to bring up too that a lot of people don't think about is you have to remember human nature is very peculiar. And the thing that a person gets incarcerated for, not even often the thing or the worst thing that that person has done. That's a really good point. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I can say like I was locked up for drunk driving, you know, and you could take that or leave it. But with other people, and I'm not even gonna say that's the worst thing that I've done. Like when I was a drunk, right? Like I had abandoned my kids and went to the bar at some point, you know, like a neglect situation. And I never got caught for that. But trust me, I, I paid the price in other ways. Um, you know, it was 20 years ago. But uh, a lot of these people that you see inside, it's crazy. You know, you find out that they're getting out in like two years or something. And then you sit down at the table with them and you start hearing these conversations about some of the stuff that they pulled or that they're even planning on pulling when they get out. It's 
it's unbelievable and that's when i learned that there's there's two main kinds of people that are incarcerated in prison there's those who have committed a crime and then there are those who are criminals and they're not mutually inclusive one's a mindset and the other one is it's it's like something in your toolbox it's a poor coping mechanism you know you commit a crime because you're not handling situ life situations very well right now the other person they get off on you they, yeah. they not, they would prefer things to stay screwed up so they can take advantage of those little loopholes and waterways that they can run through. Right. So. Yeah. So how would you describe your treatment by the staff and other inmates? Okay. Good. This is a tough question. <laughs> okay, he says. Okay. I want to talk about how terrible our prisons are. No. <laughs> See, and I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be <laughs> a friend that's talking, you know, trash about, you know, the girl's ex. I don't do that. And with prison, it's the same as anything else. People have to remember that, like, people that decide to be correctional officers or law enforcement or whatever, people kind of have this idea, like, this person has been dreaming about doing this or this was like a you know, like a, like a, a dream, it was a dream, like a fantasy that they wanted to do and that it's their life's vocation or whatever. I can probably count on both hands the number of, of correctional officers that I've met that actually like cared about the inmate. Like they looked at you as being wards of them, you know, like it was a responsibility to them to make sure that you were okay. And like, they weren't going to try to fuck with you and like make your time any harder than it needed to be. They didn't believe that you got sent to prison in order to get punished. They believe that you got sent there as your punishment. You're away from yeah. your family. You're away from, you know, your, your whole clock on life stops. And then when you get out, it's not even about catching up. It's about catching up and then getting ahead and it, it's horrible. So there's those people that like, they're so rare and they're the ones that you wish were more attracted to, to that line of work because they're the ones that leave an impact on you. They're the ones that, you know, you're like, damn, you know, like, I really want to do better when I get out. You know, this fucking dude, this person cares about me. Like they got no business doing that. And yeah. it's so lonely and devoid of intimacy in prison that even a little thing like that, a teacher or somebody like taking a little extra time or a, or, or a correctional officer, like, you know, giving you a little break. Like when they, you know, if you flip off the handle and you say something slick to them, you know, they could write you up and you could be going to the box or things could go very, very bad. But if they know you and they allow themselves to develop a little bit of trust with you and not look at you as just a blanket piece of shit, then, they're a good person. Now, unfortunately, most of the people that are in prison, and this includes the administrators, it includes, you know, right up to the warden, not always, even wardens, even if they, even if they have to be an asshole, I'm kind of a devil's advocate with that. Like, I, I understand why they have to do that, right? To create that separation and everything. But a lot of these other people, when I mentioned before that there are some people that believe that you get sent to prison in order to get punished, right? Mm. There's some of those people that are even well-intentioned. I fucking hate their guts. They think that you're a dog and that if they only rolled up a newspaper tight enough and swung it hard enough, that all your problems would go away and you would just see that, you know. But of course, everybody knows with substance abuse and other things, other problems, it's, it's not that easy. You just create a punishment and then, and then it just stops. Um, yeah. 
though those kind of people i can i can still like relate with a little bit because they see you as a human being they want you to be better they accept the fact that you're gonna be back out in society and like you know they don't want you being a raving lunatic but unfortunately even worse than these people are the ones that they, they like get off on that like you're basically, you know, they, they believe like it's like a divine uh, position that they have in order to be able to exact punishment just because they enjoy it. You know, like they can get away with it kind of thing. It's a perfect job for them to be a dick to people and get paid for it. And you're, you heard that, you heard that saying, if you, uh, if, uh, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> There are an awful lot of law enforcement uh, or correctional officers uh, that really like being shitty to people that they feel are underneath them. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of them that are quite happy on the job. We'll just put it that way. Did they uh, ever get any consequences that you know of? I will get into that in a second. I uh, <laughs> So the, the, last, the last person that I wanted to mention that, and it usually is related to like the education directors, wardens, security director and stuff. Those are the people that do not fucking care about you as a human being at all. You are not even really cattle. You're more of a commodity that the state has mandated them to manage. They're 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 a commodity manager. So you are you are you are a number. You are supposed to be here for a period of time and then go there. And they have so many calories that they have to give you, but they don't care about how they get there. They don't care. They just don't care. They see an entrance date and an exit date. And they hope you don't die in that time, I guess, because it'll probably cause some smoke for them. But I've seen more guys swan dive off the pier, hang themselves, uh, ask somebody else to stab them, choke them. Um, I've probably seen two dozen deaths, at least, in prison. Some of them were my own roommates, right? And I, I think I've maybe seen a couple of them like roll across the ticker on the bottom of of a. a of a TV, you know, like a, a like a, a news thing or something like that, once in a while, but that really does not happen that often. So, as far as consequences goes, that's it's like excitingly complicated because there's uh, there's the appropriate form of justice that comes through, uh, you know, the chain of command, and that you you file grievances and you write what are called ICI or like inmate complaint reports. And, you know, you try to go through the official uh, means when you're being mistreated. I can tell you that with, without almost any absolute exception, that doesn't work. Um, the thin blue line is a mile wide inside. It really is. There are some people that don't like seeing, remember I told you about those few people that are like decent people they don't like seeing their co-workers shit on people and it pisses them off so they'll they'll go to bat for you occasionally but it makes things complicated for their life too so what happens more frequently i would say than them getting any kind of official conduct report or being written up or anything is inmate justice now when i was in like stanley you know same thing with like with the inmates uh, on inmate violence I, I've seen COs like really push their position. You know, they might be a white shirt at some point. Like you go from being a regular corrections officer, you have no law enforcement, like officiating duties at all. You can't carry a taser, you can't do none of that. Then you can become like a CO, like one striper, and then a 
sergeant to a striper and you can get all the way up to being a lieutenant and a captain right these are white shirts now these people they like they like swagger into the units and they try to like pretend like you're your buddy they might sit here and play or watch a uh, football game with you for a while or whatever but most people don't like that they don't want to be around the cops anymore than they have to and sometimes these people will insert themselves in conversations they have no business being in and i've seen on at least three different occasions one of them i can tell you by name um her name was sherry shanaki it was uh lieutenant shanaki and she was a wow she was kind of i imagine she was a bombshell in her day like she was probably in her late 50s at this time but she was like six foot four very large woman like amazon woman you know sturdy like watching football cool chick right like she was all right but there was this guy that she just steady messed with and he was an older black gentleman worked out all the time knew him real good he and i shared workouts got shoulder problems whatever she said something to him i don't even know what it was and he ignored it she said it again ignored it said it again and he turned and he and he put his hand out and he goes stop you have no reason to talk to me i don't want to talk to you until you have something you need to say to me mind your business Mm. And he went up to his room and she went up there and she knocked on his fucking door. And like, she wouldn't even have to knock on his door. So like, that was kind of weird anyway. But she knocks on his door. He doesn't open his door. She opens his door. And at that point, that man had had enough. Oh. He, bolted, he bolted out of there so quickly and grabbed her by her shirt and threw her right over the second tier then he ran downstairs and beat the loving piss out of this woman oh now when i said that she was cool and stuff right she was she was a totally corrupt she was she she was not a good person she was cool but she was not a good person so she had screwed a lot of people over and there wasn't a whole lot of inmates that were like upset about this not like they would have said anything if they did now i can tell you that and I don't condone or, or support that or whatever, but I'll tell you what happened is after that, you know, she obviously was out of work for like a long period of time. She came back and she was a very changed person. And I'm she surprised was, she came back. I kind of was too. I have to admit it. I, I, I mean, I saw the beating. Yeah. I, I, I would have come back. I'm surprised. Yeah. She, see, I'm kind of surprised she lived. I, <laughs> oh my God. I probably wouldn't have came back. They don't even pay that well. Yeah, well, and the state of Wisconsin, see, that's the thing about them being so understaffed is everybody gets overtime. It's built into their thing. They had a newspaper story, I think it was in 2018, about a sergeant at RCI, a guy that I know that I watched sleep eight out of 10 hours of his shift on a regular basis. <laughs> and he, oh my God. he made it into the paper for making more than like any other person than like law enforcement or some shit that entire year he made like a hundred and seven thousand dollars or something it was ridiculous it's just mm -hmm. ridiculous. because they only start at 18 dollars an hour so yep. and then they, well and then you know they do things the doc does things that even that is self-damaging like i believe it was in 2019 or 2020 you know when they were having all these staff shortages and stuff that they created an incentive program for the co's um and what they did is they basically incentivized a pay bump 
I think it was like it was like a five dollar an hour raise or something like that for them to go work at a maximum security prison. Yeah, it was a couple different facilities that yeah, they were shooting, like Wapan, Dodge, um, Green Bay. Bay. Yeah, there was a few different yeah. ones. Yeah. Well, and then the. Are they? I was gonna say because I know that the, the head of the DAI, the, the Department of Adult Institutions, like nine months after they had done this, and like people had moved and relocated all this stuff, all of a sudden he sends out this email that a person in the DOC. I, I worked as the welder in there, and like staff was cool with me, right? But I saw an email that <laughs> that this guy was like, oh, oh, and by the way, kind of thing, there was a time limit on this $5 an hour raise. So we're going to be rescinding it in like three months or something like that. So these people that all this, oh, they were pissed, you know, yeah. and of course, coming into work and they're talking about this. And as an inmate, I didn't do anything personally to this person, but they're mad about the situation and oh, yeah. convenient to take that out on a person, you know, like us. Right. So. I think now they might be doing it as like a sign-on bonus. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. And it's probably going to result in fewer assault rifles showing up at work. You would imagine. You never know. Very upset people about that. Even when they when they disbanded the union and all that stuff, a lot of that stuff got really dicey with the, the staff. Some of the staff at facilities are not very kind at all. They do like little stuff to fuck with inmates. Now, are you, uh, I don't want to uh, have you divulge anything like too personal, but are, are you more criminal or, I mean, is that how you, you know more about the... Uh, yeah, I'm, I've worked in the criminal law and I've had a lot of friends and people in prison. One of my best friends is in prison right now, so. You've got friends in low places kind of thing? <laughs> friends. In your garden books on? All right. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. But I've seen I've seen the stuff that the guards do, like not sending emails out. You know, I'll wait a couple of days to see if I can cause some problems in your relationships or any stuff. Things that that, that uh, there's a couple of stories just to like to show you how shitty these people can really be about certain things. So like uh, I was at I was at Stanley, and this was back in 2000 and. Nine, I think it was. Oh, yeah, that was when I met uh, Greg Allen. You know who Greg Allen is, right? Uh-uh. Greg Allen? So, interesting, uh, interesting aside, real quick here. Uh, there'll be a lot of tangents. Um, Gregory Allen is the gentleman that actually con committed the crime that Stephen Avery was originally wrongful. Oh, oh okay. Greg Allen, <laughs> humongous asshole. I, I hate that man. I played pinochle with him for almost two years straight. He was my partner, but I hated him. He was. Oh my god. Uh, he he thought it was the funniest thing ever. That he he really thought it was funny that he got Avery locked up, and then later I found out he thought it was funny that he had basically screwed Avery up so much that he went and committed an actual crime. He thought he was like some Mephistophelian like dude. Oh. And this is a guy that's locked up for like aggravated assault and rape. Greg Allen is, and. Like, I can only imagine, he's a type of guy that a lot of his crimes are probably worse than the one that he's incarcerated for. So, yeah. but anyway, yeah. when, I, when I was there in 2009, back then, uh, a lot of the prisons still did their own commissary and canteen, right? You know, like when you can buy not horrible prison food. And yeah. uh, so at this canteen, they actually had a, a physical place there, a building that had all of the stuff in there. 
believe my eyes when this was happening. There was a guy, this little short black dude that I that I knew, his name was Cheese. He was a funny, funny guy. But he was like, he'd always talk about how much of a player he was. And, you know, he was a pimp, but he's got all these women on stuff. Like, yeah, whatever. And there was a sergeant that she was the, the first shift uh, unit sergeant on Walworth unit where I was at. And her, uh, she said it was her cousin or whatever, cousin or niece was going to start working there. And it was younger 20 something you know gal um he's looking nice enough you know she's friendly and she starts working there and i see this guy going up to her steady and like talking to her every day just on her ear right and about a month and a half later i'm up in my room and i'm sitting there drinking coffee and i'm kind of late at night and i'm looking out the window and we can go out we don't have we don't have uh wet cells but I'm I'm just looking out and all of a sudden I see that dude cheese walking you know down and I think he's all just going to the bathroom or whatever. He goes down there and he's standing in the day room and you're not allowed the day room at night. And the sergeant that's there is pretending like he's not even there. All of a sudden her niece or her cousin or whatever it was. She comes in the front of the unit, right in the atrium. Goes goes in, walks right past him. He turns and he follows her. And I'm looking around, and there's there's a water closet that goes that that opens for like maintenance, going behind all the urinals and the toilets and stuff. Things the plumber can get in there and all that stuff. She goes over, opens that door. She walks in. He walks in. She closes the door behind them. They're in there for like 15, 20 minutes. I mean, a, a long period of time. He comes out, like at that point, like I'm, I'm just steady sitting there while I pulled my chair over to the door. <laughs> I'm like, what do we got going on here? You know? <laughs> That's how I would have been too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's entertainment. We're all, you know, you're, everybody's a busy body. So, you know, and then, and then like, so I see him come out. And I'm thinking, okay, like, I'm not coming, you know, hey, I gotta hate the guy, he's doing what he's doing, right? <laughs> but then all of a sudden, I see from one of the other, uh, one of the other wings, because there's an east and a west side, two guys come down. One guy sits in the day room, and the other guy goes into that fucking Now, I only watched those two guys come in. And at that point, I had to go to sleep. It was very late at night, and I was tired. Yeah. I had to get in the morning. Like I've seen enough. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I mean, seeing like sex trafficking occur, like during prison staff watching and participating, it's very, it's very weird. It's yeah. it's, it's very difficult to have you know conversations with these people when all of a sudden people are watching or whatever and then they want to hold you accountable for something and like you know that they got to look good on their job you don't want to make them look bad or whatever but there are times when it gets infuriating because you know that they're probably doing some shit that's worse than you ever did yeah you know and some of their co-workers even know that you know and that's the thing too like as weird as that that blue line thing is there's no like emotional happiness in it like there is with a union affiliation or something 
it's like none of them wants to be under the gun. They're all paranoid about their coworkers and stuff. So they act like whatever their coworker is acting like, whether it's a terrible human being or totally innocuous, just to make things smooth for themselves. But it's always at the expense of the inmates. Always. Right. Yeah. And that does not do any favors for recidivism, um, you know, for like conscientiously trying to like engage in cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff. I mean, they give you a lot of opportunity to practice stuff like that. You get pissed <laughs> yeah. off. So, oh boy, I'm glad I got all these tools, right? <laughs> get to use yeah. them all. But, uh, but yeah, it's frustrating. Luckily, some things have changed. It's just, what's crazy to me is that the University of Ohio or Iowa or whatever, right? All these play, they'll come out with these studies and they'll say like, this is the best way to uh, rehabilitate an offender. And you have to do this. And like, there's no question about this. And then like five years later, they throw that entire thing out and say it was all garbage and something else becomes the new religion. And if you don't do exactly that, you're going to get in trouble. Like That's because nobody knows what they're doing. No, they don't. They just, they just make it up as they go and then change their minds because it's not working. That's a good segue though. Did you find that anything in, while you were in prison helped you get rehabilitated or do you think that that's kind of something that they don't really focus on is there anything that really helped you with coming out of the system yes okay um there there are a number of enrichment programs and things depending on which institution you go to there's vocational uh things that you can do that you can really invest your time in learning to be a mason or a welder or a carpenter um depending on the institution but i have to say well something first and that's that if somebody wants to get out of prison and stay out of prison it's their responsibility it is not up to anybody else. I mean, yes, there are people that are wrongfully incarcerated and that get, you know, railroaded and whatever, but it is such a minuscule amount. If you want to stay out of prison, instead of playing cards all day, every day and enterprising and, and, and doing all kinds of shisty stuff when you're inside, start thinking about what got you in there. And I did that. The first couple of sentences that I had, and it's actually a thing why I'm not a big fan of short sentences. Like, I don't think a person should get incarcerated at all until it like reaches the criteria of like five years inside, because really anything less than that, like, like I believe in drug courts and treatment, alternative diversions and, and stuff. I really do. Because when you take somebody and throw them in prison like that, and it's not a significant amount of time people are very good at managing their like comfort level, especially if they're an addict or whatever. So they'll find a way to get by and they'll just white knuckle it through two, three, even four years. Right. Mm -hmm. and then they'll get back on the street a little bit more resentful and whatever doesn't work. You can't just expect to be in prison, get out. And then now you're not going to get caught next time. It doesn't work. So I, I got very heavily involved in practicing Buddhism. You know, a lot of people pick a, a belief system or, or whatever, and I'm not going to get into all that. I mean, it, meditation has been very effective for me. It basically made my mind more fertile to like, to not be an asshole and sarcastic and stuff when, when hearing these people or getting books about cognitive behavioral therapy 
or, you know, developing coping mechanisms and stuff like that. A lot of people roll their eyes with that stuff. I decided I wasn't going to do that. I was going to be like, you know, somebody, somebody wrote this stuff, like trying to be helpful. Like, even if it is all bullshit, I'm going to try it. And there were things that didn't work and things that did. And it calmed me down enough so that when this opportunity to participate in what's called uh, the Shakespeare prison project, um, I, I went at that full tilt. Um, I was in a little bit of acting and stuff in community theater, theater and high school and stuff before all these problems happened. So it sort of was a, a great thing when I got inside and, or in that program. Uh, and basically what they do is you put on a, a Shakespeare play, um, but you analyze like the entire play. And we, had, there was a professor that I still work with now that I'm, I've been released, uh, John Shaler at UW Parkside, he's a communications professor. Um, you know, you'd come in as a volunteer and we, we would act out the play. We would all get roles and we would actually put on a real performance, which is very smart on his part. Um, but the whole idea of it is using Shakespeare and like the stuff that happens in the plays, you know, murders and, and, and weddings and like, and good things and bad things and all these things that happen in Shakespeare. Um, it creates like, so if you have an, if you have a character that is feeling very sad because they're separated from their children or whatever, you might have some, you know, tough thug that's very uncomfortable trying to express that stuff, but you mm -hmm. still got to, so now you put them in this program where, you know, uh, so you're not Trey, you're Yakimo. So now as Yakimo, we need you to scream and cry and fall on your knees and, and, you know, and bemoan and bewail the world. And, you know, it takes a while for a person to come out of their shell enough in order to do it. But once they're convinced that they're doing the character and informing that with their life experience, and this isn't you just being a fucking dingbat. Now, <laughs> yeah. suddenly that person is willing to like enlarge the boundaries and stuff. And so that, that was very impactful for me. We had lots of discussions. There are themes that happen in Shakespeare, everything from, you know, rape and loss and murder and, and, you know, gain and, and all this stuff that it, it was the first really instructive time that like, I, I, I got to put myself in a scenario and, and really not just move past it when it got uncomfortable. You know, we would sit for days and talk about some of these issues that happen. And when you, when you exist in an uncomfortable place for long enough, it stops bothering you so much. And when things stop bothering you so much, you tend to find fewer reasons to do like bad things to cope with them. And I, I don't know, it, it changed every, like, I'm still the person kind of that I was when I went inside. Like I still have the interest that I do and all that stuff, but it totally changed the way that I interrelate with other people now. Um, and that program I would say is, it is a rarity. There are other programs that they have, but it requires, it requires a person that is incredibly diplomatic, that is patient, that can handle education directors and wardens that think that you, you don't belong in a prison, you're being too nice to these guys, we don't like it, you know, whatever. But this guy, so now he's got this program where we get to put on these plays, right? And we actually do performances where they can invite in some cases, a limited public. It depends on if, you know, if you're like a pedophile or something like that, they can't have like children in the audience or anything like that. Um, but 
you have like he invites a large number of the staff and believe it or not we put on very good shows like the actors like they did a very good job um and and you, what you can see on the website if you'd like they do have some footage of us acting in the uh in the prisons um, okay we'll put that in the show notes yep it's the part and it's uh, they're available on facebook as well it's the shakespeare in prison network and there are prisons all across the world that are starting to use this program uh, Yep, it's I, and I like I've gone on to Chicago Shakespeare uh, along with another friend of mine. We're spokespersons uh, for the program, um, you know, and it's yeah, it's 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 marvelous. But there are, I'm sure, other programs that are good. I have not participated in them. I have participated in probably over a dozen programs, including the state's own drug abuse correctional center programs. You know, they have facilities where they put you in there, and it's program and. Mm. Did you go to DAC? I did twice. Did you hate it there? Well, I mean, the fact that I went back again just says that I love it, right? <laughs> you like it so much, you wanted to come back and see us again. That's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> oh, I hated it. Uh, it was it was really bad the first time. The second time around, it was actually not as horrible. Um, but I can say that. The only reason why I did that program, the only reason why anybody I've ever known has done that program is for the the, the earned release that you get from it. It has yeah. nothing to do. It is the dumbest thing to me that they provide a program like that at the end of a person's sentence. Yeah. Now, what you should do is they should they should put it at the beginning of your sentence. Yeah. And then they should be, essentially have like a probationary thing where like you have to like essentially serve out so much to your sentence after that and if you do it without incidents then you've earned your release because then that person is not going to be a shithead for the first five years of their sentence and then all of a sudden try to straighten up in six for the last six months you know before they get out like will they be able to get that rubber stamp on their paperwork probably but like you're not actually changing a person takes more than six months to like change maybe some other behavior behaviors and habits but you're not going to like really get a watershed situation from a person like that you need to right. put them under so yeah i and i chippewa uh, i was there briefly before i got kicked out <laughs> in uh in 2010 i think yeah so i've been to those two um i think they have a couple other ones in the state now i think flambeau maybe yeah, I'd, St. Croix used to have a boot camp. I don't know if they still do or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, I've used a number of programs. Shakespeare's the only one that works. Do you have something? Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, do you think your sobriety was impacted by being in prison? Like, do you think that going to prison as somebody whose main problem is that you have a drinking problem? Because mm -hmm. that was your problem. Yep. It was alcohol related. I did not, I have not committed a, a crime other than a traffic, a moving violation without the aid of alcohol. Mm -hmm. so, so do you think like a prison sentence was an appropriate sentence to rehabilitate you? I think the last time it was effective, but again, that's because I spent a substantial period of time in there. Now, mm -hmm. what I did, I learned a very important thing about myself while I was in there. And I, hate myself for saying that this was the person that uh enlightened me but it was dr phil i was watching dr phil oh yeah dr phil television baby so <laughs> it, 
I think it was right around the, the whole cash me outside uh, <laughs> thing, Danielle, that he had said something to the effect, there was a guest on his show about there being uh, irresistible impulses and impulses not resisted. Like there's a difference. There's yeah. people that have irresistible impulses and people that just don't resist their impulse. Yeah. And I realized at that point that I am a person that does not have an irresistible impulse. It doesn't mean I'm not alcoholic, but what it does mean is that I went through my entire prison sentence this last time. I had hooch around me, heroin, K2, Coke, crack, every drug you can imagine. Well, yeah. Acid. I mean, I P, PCP. I could have got... I, I mean, per, I, there's everything in prison. There's I mean, more drugs in prison than there is outside. That sounds like a party. I appreciate you saying that because anybody that says, just like anybody that says that they've read Moby Dick or anybody that says that they like the book Moby Dick has never actually read it, right? There is right. Nobody, nobody that can truly believe that, that about prison. There's so many drugs. Yeah. And- the, the idea that you go into a prison and and you're not going to have access or availability to that stuff like, oh, it's yeah. Oh, well, you stayed sober, but it was in prison is so ridiculous because you have every motivation in the world to, to do stuff. I mean, yeah, you'll get in trouble if you get caught, but but there's so much of it around. But anyway, so I realized like I had cellies and stuff that would do this. And I was like, you know what? No, no. If I can't get through a six year sentence without fucking off like then i really really do have a problem and i and i believed i had a problem then and i i had the feeling that at the end of six years i was probably i was paranoid about being the same way i was when i got out the last time so i was really like i don't know i was kind of like over excuse me overly cautious but uh i didn't and learning that thing about the irresistible impulse and impulse not resisted that had a very big like impact on sort of my my self-esteem and it gave me like a motivation to like see if I could if I could do that resisting and I did over and over and over again and it got easier and easier and easier and after that period of time when I got out I just kind of lost the desire to drink anymore you know and like now I I tell people I'm allergic to it you know it makes me break out in handcuffs you know <laughs> but, so I, I just don't I don't do it anymore I mean I you know I do my little Do people try to pressure you to drink like in your social circle or do you have a sober social circle? I, I have a sober circle. Like when I got out, I, I got into, um, well, that was the other thing I would say. You know, when I said all that stuff about the treatment, alternative diversions and all that stuff. Like when I got out, there's a um, there's an organization called Whistle. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. No. So it's kind of like a transitional living sort of thing that when you get out, uh, you know, you move into this place, but it's like a, it's like an actual apartment. They require for like the first month, you know, that you go to meetings every day, A meetings or M.A. And so for a period of time, like I did that, you know, I used to be kind of guy who was like, fuck it, I don't need it. You know, that's all, it's all called and all that stuff. And I still kind of believe that. But, I mean, it's the truth that having a place to go where a bunch of sober people are hanging out to talk about sobriety and to stay sober is a good way to like stay sober whether you like right. stuff. so I just I did it for a long time and then like I found myself needing it less 
and you know, and so like, and during that time, you obviously meet people, like, you know, kind of like going to a restaurant, you go and get your food and leave. Some people do that, but like, I actually try to engage people, and uh, and by doing that, I created a network of people, and uh, and it was very that was another thing very important. I, when I moved or when I got out of prison, I I went into Whistle rather than you know ending up in a toxic situation again, you know, living around people that I shouldn't be around or, or whatever. And, you know, I'm 40 years old now. It's not like I'm 20, 25, you know, where the, the idea of drinking and partying and all that stuff is, you know, it's FOMO. You're just not, it's not crazy. And now I just really care about it so much. Like, so I, I kind of grew out of it. It's just really, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have grown out of it by this time, you know, minus the 11 years in prison. But I do have the suspicion that I would be dead right now, and it would be a moot point of even asking the question if I had. So, mm-hmm. two different sort of parallel universes. Yeah, I agree with you with what you said, because Fallon he has chosen for a very long time to not drink and um i have made the personal decision to recently just stop drinking and being around her has been it's impacted me just because it's not something that somebody's doing habitually it's not even on the table and i think it's really important if you want to make that step to have people like in your life. <laughs> so I totally agree with what you said. I mean, I don't people pressure you. We can pressure you. Yeah. Do they really? Yeah. Uh, everybody's been really smooth with me, but I guess maybe people, you know, I'm on Front Street about that too. Like, I, I don't like go out of my way to let people know, but they generally kind of get the notion that like I've, I've been in trouble, you know, so. Well, and I haven't drank for like eight, nine years. And people still, people that are close to me that know that I have no interest in drinking, they'll still be like, are you sure you still don't want a shot for a two? Like, if you That's want me to dick punch move. you by the end of the night, I... <laughs> that is a dick move. It is. Yeah. yeah. Unless you yeah. had like, unless you had like a really hot guy friend or something that you wanted to like bang forever and it just never happened. And then like all of a sudden way down the road, you know, like you would want that person to still revisit asking you, you know, if it was something that you actually wanted, but if it's <laughs> drinking or like you're a hair, like you're a recovered heroin addict, why the fuck would somebody do that? That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's so it's just, weird. It's different with alcohol because nobody else is pressuring you to do a little hit of crack or something like that, you know? It's like, just a little bit. It's like... Fresh. No. <laughs> but it's well, so weird. I think it's just because of the normalcy of drinking and, yeah. like, if you don't drink, it's not normal, especially in Wisconsin, too. Yeah, that, that's like, I wonder if that's kind of where you guys live. Yeah, and it makes people uncomfortable when you don't drink and they want to drink. Yeah, I've been asked like, "Are you sure? Is it okay? Are you are you positive?" And it's like, "Dude, stop! Just stop! It's fine." Yeah. Yeah, yeah that I mean, I I I can't even think of the last time that's really happened. And I'm almost forty too, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and there's the other thing though, like, so like my family, I'm not like the total odd duck in my family. And a lot of my um, social gatherings, at least lately, I think with a lot of people too with COVID and stuff has been either family related or family adjacent. 
And in my family, you know, my dad's a raving, raging alcoholic. I don't talk to him anymore. My sister, um, you know, she's a, an alcoholic. She's been in recovery for 17 years. Um, so she's been like an awesome resource all the time. And like, I'll go over by her and hang out with her friends. Um, and so obviously they don't, you know, they're not going to push. They might be yeah. like, are you, you don't want a cup of coffee? You want a cigarette? they <laughs> <laughs> will be pressuring you to do something else. You know, you sure you don't want to go to a meeting? Come on, let's go to a meeting. <laughs> Four. Know. nobody will know yeah, they get crazy i think but, we uh, have final question for you um from your personal experience what do you think needs to be changed about the current criminal justice system in wisconsin specifically they need to get rid of truth in sentencing it did not work for several other states it did not work here. It still has not worked. When you take away the incentive for bad behaving people to behave better, right? Which is getting out of prison sooner through parole. Yeah. It turns prison into Raul's wild kingdom. Bad yeah. things happen there, both to inmates and to visitors, to mm. volunteers, to staff, to everybody. It's not healthy when you have people very, very angry in these places. So dealing with that in a more intelligent way is what's necessary. Get rid of truth in sentencing. And I'm not gonna say all of Wisconsin state prison problems are gonna get solved, but they will be greatly diminished. Yeah, okay. and extended supervision is some bullshit anyways. It's just created to keep people in the system for as long as possible. I know a guy that got sentenced to six years and he did 14 yep. incarcerated all together on a six year sentence. Yeah. Wow. Cause you get out. I don't know. For people that don't know how extended supervision works, you get out, you're basically on probation and your PO can send you back for whatever they really want to send you back for. Rule infraction, not for yeah, rule infractions. Yep. Break a rule that was specifically tailored to you. Yeah. yeah. So you might break a curfew. You might miss too many visits. You might get accused of something by somebody that doesn't like you. And they will, and they will always err on the side of caution. So they will put you on a PO hold, right? Yep. Jack up your job and your living situation, everything else, until they get mm -hmm. it figured out they'll be like oh okay you're fine yeah you Meanwhile, can go home you just did 60 days and you don't have a job or a home or a girlfriend to do something with you within 21 days but still it only takes one day to not show up on the job in a certain yeah. kind of job get job abandonment well and you can always ask for an extension if you don't have time to get your case together <laughs> oh yeah yeah you get another weekend so yeah <laughs> but yeah so i i I, I do honestly believe that if you incentivize good behavior, I mean, that's what they did with Dak and stuff. Yeah. Just, just make it so like on the day-to-day -day regular basis, if you have all the people that see you every day, staff members and whatever, these people that are interacting with you every day and they give recommendations to a parole board. Yeah. You want to be good to these people. Like you don't want to piss them off or you want to behave and do the right things and stay in your lane. But now yeah. it's, it doesn't matter. My MR date is my MR date. Woo! Light it up. Yeah. It's important. Pretty much. 
What was the first thing you did when you were released? And that's that's my official final question for you. Uh, so I released from DAC uh, up in Winnebago this last time. It was on March 26th. Uh, it, it was a fun situation. Maybe we'll talk about my experience at DAC some other time when we get time. But, okay. uh, so when I, I, after I bounced the coin uh, that they gave me for completion off of uh, the head administrator's desk and into her lap <laughs> as I walked out. Wow. Yep. I banged it up. I was still good with prison. I just didn't like her. Okay. Um, but I got out. Uh, my friend had picked me up. I immediately changed into some fresh clothes, right? Because I had clothes that they had put inside for me, but they smelled like prison. They were personal clothes. Mm. I, so I even changed out of those as soon as I got outside. And I changed into a set of clothes and we drove about three or four minutes down the road, uh, heading back towards the freeway. And it was all like farmland. And I told him to pull over. He pulled over and I walked out in the middle of a, it was a cornfield that hadn't been planted yet. And I screamed. Oh. I fucking screamed. I, I think I said, fuck. Uh, ah, <laughs> I don't know. There were, it was a lot of very onomatopoeic sort of situation that happened there, but I screamed and I screamed and I screamed almost till I screamed myself hoarse. And I went back, jumped in my buddy's truck. He didn't say a word to me. He just smiled and he goes, where next? And I said, take me to Taco Bell. <laughs> and so we, Cause I, I, that was another thing I learned too. After my first bit, I got out, had a porterhouse steak, got sick and threw up. It's too rich. Oh. You know, next time did Olive Garden, did a little bit better, but this time I had I had no uh, straight for garbage. <laughs> yep, straight garbage. I got a transition <laughs> of prison garbage into like normal food. So talk right. about like a normal, you know, <laughs> a run. Yeah, I would agree with you. Well. Oh, we want to say thank you so much for your time and your candor. We really appreciate you and all that you've done for us. We're not going to talk about that because we already did. <laughs> and um, we will keep this conversation going. Yeah, okay. it was great to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys including me in this. Um, it's been a lot of fun listening to your guys' podcast. I'm really into the whole true crime thing. And I, I was really flattered and like grateful that, um, that any of my experience can still be of some value outside of, you know, my little bubble that I'm in. So, yeah, yeah, it definitely is. People need to know how it really is. Yeah. And I think if more people, that's the other thing, if more people knew, you know, when you said like, what needs to change, if more people actually saw what happened. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't, don't forget, forget, we love you. Love you.